Um, Vaughn Kohler, writer, podcaster, guru, and entertainer. Seemingly Ordinary is a podcast about people who on the surface appear ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Today, I'm interviewing the author, podcaster, and life coach, Vaughn Kohler. Vaughn spent years as a Baptist pastor, but his deep yearning for God led him to do a lot of reading, and he read his way into the Catholic Church. Of course, that literally put him out of a job. One thing led to the next, and Vaughn ended up working with Andy Frisella, the host of the MF CEO podcast, which was a top 200 podcast, and now Mr. Frisella hosts Real AF. How did this happen? And what about Vaughn's book? And what about his secret origin story? Today, we're going to find out many, many intriguing facts about the always compelling Vaughn Kohler. Hi, Vaughn. <laughs> Hi, Tim. You are always compelling as well. One of the most interesting uh, people that I've ever known. So it's, it's a real delight to be on here with you. You're, you're, uh, you're very kind. Um, I feel like we should start with your book, Sacred Drive. Vaughn, I just found it very compelling. You just have an incredible knack for telling good stories. Not only that, but you've got this really, really inviting writing style. I mean, you know, it's, it's reminding me of Michael Crichton in the sense that before you know it, you're on page 20 and you're kind of wondering, <laughs> how did that even happen? I mean, it's just, it's very, very breezy and yet it keeps the brain in high gear the whole time. Um, that's pretty amazing. And maybe we could talk about how you craft sentences later. But you also have this ability to use these stories to give really powerful life lessons. And I, I just wanted to say all that. I just wanted to compliment you. Thank on you. All of the above. I appreciate that. Okay. I appreciate that. So, well, yeah. I mean, so you wanted me to talk about my writing style or? <laughs> uh, well, let's, let's jump into what Sacred Drive is about, first of all. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Well, so when I left the pastorate in 2011, um, and I'm really giving you the Cliff Notes version here. But I ended up working for a man named Andy Frisella, who a uh, very successful entrepreneur in the St. Louis area. He took basically nothing and built a nine-figure nutritional supplement empire called First Form and Supplement Superstorm Stores. Um, First Form is the actual manufacturer of the products, but uh, Supplement Superstores is the retail outlets uh, that sell the product. But um, Andy is just a genius in business and motivation, personal development, that sort of thing. He's not for the faint of heart. He's uh, got very salty language. Um, we had He had very salty language on the podcast that I helped co-host. Co uh, a lot of people, that's not a big deal. But if you're someone who uh, can't get past cussing uh, in order to learn some life lessons, you're not going to like Andy. But I love Andy. He's a good man. Um, and and I, I learned so much about personal development and excellence and entrepreneurship from him. But as I was serving him in various uh, positions, um, and most notably the co-hosts of the podcast, I would get Christians or people who were just open-minded to spiritual things, they would ask me again and again, like, well, you know, how do I take this particular topic of, of personal development, like maybe mental toughness or organization, and how do I see that through the lens of scripture or a more God-centered approach? And more specifically, people were saying, you know what? I have these great hopes and dreams. I want to crush my goals. I want to get in peak physical condition. I want to do all this amazing stuff. But I feel kind of guilty about that because is that something that that God would want me to do? And so 
The title of the book comes from the fact that I tell people that you can have a selfish ambition to accomplish all these, you know, worldly achievements only for your own uh, personal glory, or you can have holy ambition and to want to do everything to the glory of God and the good of the world. And so sacred drive is the idea that we should all cultivate this, this sacred drive, this holy ambition to succeed in every area of our lives, but not just for our own personal gain, but for the glory of God and the good of the world. And so in the practical way of thinking of that, you know, obviously in the, in the success and motivation space, there's that desire to make a lot of money. Um, I think if that's your desire to just, you know, amass the cash so that you can buy, you know, Lamborghinis and condos and mansions, that is problematic for Christians. But if your desire is to really scale your business to nine figures so that you create an amazing amount of wealth and you use that wealth for kingdom purposes, it's not to say that you can't have nice car or nice mansion, but overall, you're basically saying, Lord, this is your money. I want you to do with it what you will. Those are two totally different things. And I I, I really am a firm believer in encouraging people, yes, seek to be a successful entrepreneur and use your success for the glory of God. I love that. And that's really what the book is all about. It's it's 17 biblical principles for for pursuing your God-given potential so that it's not just for your own personal gain, but for your for God's glory and the good of the world. I, I just absolutely love that. Uh, it's just so interesting because I, I know I felt this way and I feel like other Christians have felt this way that if you achieve something, if you do something well, then you almost feel bad about it. You almost feel yeah. guilty that oh, hey, I I made more money than I usually make. And so then you feel maybe like you did something wrong. And I just, I love, a long time ago, I kind of thought about the seven deadly sins in this sense. You know, uh, greed is considered one of the seven deadly sins, but ambition is a good thing. And so I think these seven deadly sins all kind of exist on a spectrum. And it, it really just kind of boils down to your intention behind it, which is, I think, is is that the central premise of your book? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's intention and, and it's disposition because I think that, um, you know, in the old Testament in particular, you have a lot of examples of people who are very, very, uh, committed to God and they're rich, they're wealthy people, they're people with resources and means. And I think in the best situations, those people always saw their wealth uh, and their resources as gifts. You know, I think where they, where, um, where it becomes problematic is that when you start to see all that as idols, that you're going to center your life on your wealth rather than say, Hey, my wealth is a gift from God. I'm, I'm called to be a steward, to use it for his purposes. So yeah, I think intention and I think disposition, like how you regard the things in your life is really huge. And I would also say, Tim, you know, I use the example I've said this before is that when I first started uh, the pastorate and I would preach, um, I loved it. Like I loved the, the, I mean, not just from the standpoint of the holy calling of preaching, but I love the dynamic of being in front of people and, and delivering this message that hopefully, you know, brought them some insight and some hope. And it always meant a ton to me when people would come up and say, Oh, your, your message meant so much. And at one point I, I started sort of, navel gazing a little bit and started thinking, well, you know, I don't know if I'm doing this all for the right reasons. I don't know if my motives are just to glorify God. And so I went to one of the elders of the church at the time and I said, you know, I don't even think I should preach anymore. 
they're like, why? And I, and I told them, I said, because I think I have these really mixed motives. I think some of it is really about just me and, and my personal glory. And he was a very wise Christian man. And he just said, Vaughn, if you are waiting for 100% pure motives, you will never preach. Uh, the, the point is, is that that's the ideal to strive toward. And there are times where we're going to have mixed motives. And that's when we just have to say, Lord, purify my motives, purify my intentions. So I think there are people out there that are Christians that are very Christ-centered. And there are times that they don't use their money in ways that glorify God, or they don't use their resources in the way that they should. But that doesn't mean, therefore, get rid of all your resources and commit to being poor and don't ever do anything of any ambition. It just means that it's a process and we need to continually give that to God. I love that. I just think that that's absolutely great. Well, right from the get-go on reading your book, um, I was just ripping through the pages. In fact, after I ordered it, I really couldn't wait, so I just jumped in on the free sample that was available online. <laughs> and uh, you started off with the story of how you came to work with Andy Priscilla. And since that's at the beginning of the book, I thought that would be a great place for us to start. Yeah. I would just love to hear you recount that story. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Well, so I had a great experience as a Protestant pastor. I was the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Manhattan, Kansas for almost 10 years. Not quite, but just about 10 years. And as you said in the intro, I, I started reading, I started praying, and uh, the Lord led me to seek full communion in the Catholic Church. And so just in practical terms, I had to get a new job. They didn't fire me or anything. It's just that you can't obviously be Catholic and continue to be the pastor of a Baptist church. So uh, Kasha and I, my wife and I moved to, uh, well, first we moved to St. Louis, but eventually, excuse me, first we moved to Kansas City, but eventually we moved to St. Louis. And when I moved to St. Louis, I was fairly confident that I'd be able to just talk my way into a new job. And I wanted to work for some different uh, colleges and universities in the area because I wanted to be a writing professor or a, or a speaking professor, communications department, that kind of thing. But I could not get anybody to take me seriously. And it was a very humbling thing. And so I started thinking, uh, all right, what am I going to do? I cannot get anybody to hire me. I got to help support my family. And so uh, two things happened. One was I realized, you know what? I'm, a, I'm pretty decent at, at writing. What can I do to make money writing? So I started my own business as a ghost writer. And then at the same time, I got connected with a local St. Louis magazine that was run by a very faithful Catholic man. And the magazine was intended to be kind of a GQ or an Esquire for St. Louis, but it was different in that they were really seeking to make men better men, to be make, make men virtuous men. And so I started writing for that magazine uh, and it paid like nothing because it was a startup. So I got paid per article. But one of the things that happened was that I was assigned to write an article about this, you know, larger than life, colorful entrepreneur in the area named Andy Frisella. And he and I, I met him. Uh, we ended up talking about our dogs for the first 30 minutes because we share a mutual love of dogs. And we really hit it off. And I and I wrote the article about it, about him. And uh, we, uh, you know, I, I dropped off copies of the magazine. He read the article. He's like, man, this is really good. You did a great job. You write really well. I said, thanks, man. I said, you know, you have great ideas. You should write a book. And he goes, well, I am a pretty good writer, but I just don't have the time. And I said, well, I know somebody who can help you write that. And so I sent a proposal to him. He accepted it. We started meeting to write the book. But what happened, Tim, is my method, and I don't know, it's probably the same as everybody else, but my method is I get this little 
recorder. I, and then I just start asking a ton of questions about a particular topic. And the person that I'm interviewing just, you know, starts answering. And what happened was we started meeting and we would have these great conversations about things like building company culture, leadership, sales, uh, motivation, uh, mental toughness. And what he did is that he had some of his guys on his company record uh, video clips of the conversations and posted his answers on social media. And at the time, Instagram was a relatively new uh, social media platform. So Andy would do Facebook and Instagram. Well, what happened was people would hear his answers and they'd say, this is amazing. Where's your podcast? And he'd say, I, I, what's a podcast? I don't know what a podcast is because in 2015, I mean, podcasts were still sort of geeky, you know, things that only tech people did. Um, long and short of it is he decides to have a podcast he says, you know what? We have a great dynamic in the way that we communicate with each other. You should be the co-host of my podcast. And I laughed him because, you know, I'm from this former, you know, Baptist conservative, you know, uh, thing. And, and I know this guy just cusses up a storm. And at the time I was also on the side. I was a, a adjunct professor for Kendrick Lennon Seminary. And so I went to the leadership there and I said, hey, listen, I've been I have kind of this great opportunity. But I said, here's the problem. You know, the guy, he's an awesome guy, but he cusses really bad. And it's funny because these really holy priests were like, uh, well, is, is, are you guys promoting immorality on your show? I said, no, not at all. In fact, I would even argue that it's basic Judeo-Christian sort of work hard, be a good person. And this guy's a really great guy. It's just salty language. And all of them said, yeah, we don't see any issue with that. Like, that's not scandal. You're not causing scandal. And they said the reality is that the people that would be offended by that are probably not going to be listening anyway. So we started the, the show, which he, of course, called the MFCEO Project. I'll let you try to imagine what that means. And uh, like within a couple months, we were top rated shows in iTunes. I mean, getting millions of downloads. And that basically led into me um, working full time for Andy, where I where I did a lot of copywriting. I did a lot of um, it's kind of hard to describe how I functioned outside of the co-host position, but I, I'm really good at if some if I'm interviewing somebody and they're telling me that they have some idea about something, I'm really good at helping them unpack and articulate that idea. Mm. And so I became sort of an idea guy for Andy. And then I just really any sort of kind of a jack of all trades in terms of helping him promote his personal brand. So it's been a really amazing ride. I've met some truly amazing people, not the least of which is Andy himself. But I mean, we've I've helped him create a, a, a group for entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, I've, I've met amazing, uh, successful football coaches, uh, leaders of industry. It's, so it's been a really it's very it's very uh, humbling that how the Lord has just given me this great opportunity to impact and engage culture. And like I said, because of that, I got all these people who were entrepreneurially minded and, and you know, into personal development who were asking questions about faith because they knew that I was a former pastor. So it was great. It's been a great opportunity. Like I said, God gave me a platform that I, I never even imagined. That's really incredible. I, I almost don't even know where to begin to start, but I think a lot of people maybe have an opportunity that's right in front of them, but then they don't take it. And here you took it. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why do you think you were smart enough or wise enough or humble enough to see, okay, I have this opportunity. 
where somebody else might say, I'm just too busy, or this is just too weird, or this is out out of my comfort zone, or I didn't major in this in college. You know, some people would have reasons, and here you just jumped in. Why is that? Yeah. Well, uh, so uh, a couple things come to my mind, and one of them is going to sound like I'm patting myself on the back, but I I, I just have to speak to this because it's a really important thing that I share with people. That in our culture, we are very much a a culture that the average person more and more wants to quote unquote do something great. We want to all become these amazing influencers. We all want to, you know, have a huge social media following and get lots of likes and, you know, feel important and significant. And one thing that I think I did really well and I made a decision. And, and the truth is, like when we moved to St. Louis, I wanted to write books. I wanted to do public speaking. I wanted to, to be an influencer. I want to do quote unquote great things for God. But one of the things that I was willing to do that I really tell everybody, this is this is incredibly important. Everybody wants to be Batman. Nobody wants to be Robin. <laughs> and 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 I I realized that you know this guy, uh, Andy Frisella, had such good things to say. It wasn't an exp- explicitly religious message. He is a Catholic. Um, he isn't necessarily a professing Christian, although he's he's a he's got uh, he's a I would say he's got a real faith. Um, and so I said, you know, I could be used by God to help this guy spread his message and really help people. And it's not necessarily how I would say things in all cases, but you know, God very often uses imperfect messages and imperfect messengers. And so I said, you know what, I'm I'm fine being second fiddle. I'm fine doing what I can to support this guy and his message and to help give him a platform. Uh, uh, and, and it's not like I gave him a platform. I'm just saying I contributing to, uh, to his brand. And so I think because of that, I put myself in the position of being connected with a lot of really amazing influencers and being connected with people. And in time, uh, in God's perfect timing, I was able to then, you know, kind of do my own thing on some level. I mean, Andy and I still work together a lot, but now I've gotten my, you know, I've gotten my book. I do some coaching. Um, I've got some other things planned that are more specific to what, the way I want to share my message with the world. But I will tell anybody, especially someone young, if you have these big dreams of wanting to be this big influencer, you know, be willing to be on a team that promotes somebody else first, because you will learn so much from that person and you will gain so much in terms of resources and connections. Um, and don't be, don't be in a hurry to promote yourself or to promote your own brand. Uh, it's okay to, to be an assistant coach before you're the coach. It's okay to be, you know, I'm here in Manhattan, Kansas, Kansas state university. Those who are historians of college football know that K-State was literally the worst program in the history of college football. And when Bill Snyder, the coach who um, retired a couple of years ago, when he came here, he affected the biggest transformation in the history of college football. And yet, if you look at his, his um, biography and his re- resume, he was an assistant coach for over 20 years Wow! before he became a head coach. And I think that that is why he was able to to uh, to succeed to the level he was able to with a place like like Kansas State. And so everybody wants to be Batman, but nobody wants to be Robin. Gosh, and um, 
you know, it's just, it's a sad thing, but just be willing to promote somebody else first before I, you work on your own stuff. I love that. Maybe a good takeaway for people would be to ask themselves, who can I promote? Um, who can I be the Robin to? Yeah, just take out a sheet of paper and list off five people, you know, that you could promote yeah. and help grow. Okay. Yeah. So in the book- no, I was just going to say real quick, Tim. Please. I mean, in very practical terms, I would come up with the people that, I mean, I would literally come up with the people that you want to go work for and contact them and say, here's what I can do for you. I can do this, 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 and this. What I don't suggest people do is to contact those people and say, I'll do anything you need. That That is way too broad and doesn't indicate any thought on your part. You need to, when you approach somebody that you want to help, you want to specifically say, here's how I can meet your needs. Here, I, Here's how I can add value. Don't go to somebody and be like, oh, I'll do anything you want. I love you so much. It's ridiculous. <laughs> right. Well, they, they wouldn't know where to put you. They don't know what you can right. do. Right. Exactly. Okay. So you also discuss many things in the book that you learned from Andy. Um, could you mention a few more of those? Yeah. Well, um, so, I mean, if Andy is very, very often asked, you know, how did you become so successful? You know? And he just shakes his head and he's like, you know, I'm not smarter or more intelligent or, or more gifted than anybody else. He said, I basically do three things in the morning. He said he, he practices visualization to just kind of imagine what is what is it I really want in life? Um, he pictures what he wants so that he reminds himself, what am I trying to do in life? Um he talks about how, you know, unsuccessful people sit around waiting for motivation, mm. whereas successful people literally take take control of their thoughts. They imagine what they want, and that's how they create motivation. They connect, they focus on what they want, and that that, that why drives their actions. So he, he that's a huge component in, in his morning routine. Um, uh, the, the second thing he does a lot, which I think is very consistent, well, and I think that's consistent with what the Catholic faith teaches and also just Christianity in general, general. But the second thing he, he talks about is he, he says that, you know, driven people, ambitious people are, they're always focused on what's next, what's, a, you know, what's ahead, um, on trying to accomplish things. And that that's a good thing. But if you don't take the time to really cultivate gratitude, you'll drive yourself insane. So, so, so Andy says every, every day when he's brushing his teeth, he goes through his list of the things that he's grateful for. And that, that's what powers what he wants to do in the future, you know, because if you're always thinking about what you don't have, you're going to be miserable. And that negative energy is going to really, really hamper your, your progress. And then the final thing, and it's so simple, Tim, but he says, I'm not smarter. I'm not more gifted. He said, I am simply someone who identifies the critical tasks that I need to accomplish that day to move ahead toward my goal. And by the end of the day, I do them. So he talks about his power list. And he says, he says, the reality is I don't usually have a lot of stuff on my power list. I have three to five things. I identify three to five things that I need to do to move forward. And once I'm done, I feel good about my day. And, and so that, that's simple approach toward life of visualization, gratitude, and hitting critical tasks. It's, it sounds so simple, but I think if people do it, um, it's really, it's really effective. And I, I, I gotta add this in too. So what I'm doing right now is I'm working with some, some pretty successful entrepreneurs and what we'd call sort of elite achievers. 
and I'm providing spiritual direction for them. Mm. And the reason I do that is because I, I have a very special heart for coming alongside people who really are movers and shakers, who are influential and making sure that they stay close to God as they're seeking to you know, crush their goals and build their empire. And one of the things that I tell them is it's the same in the spiritual life is you just, the key to, to uh, the spiritual life is not making too much of the, the mountaintop experiences, not making too much of your failures, but consistently doing those critical things that will build faith, hope, and love. And, and so we, you know, when people that work with me, we, we talk about every morning, you know, setting that, what St. Jose Maria Escriva calls your heroic moment, that, that time in the morning where no matter what you're going to get up, you're going to start battling for your success and your, your joy in Jesus. And then we talk about a daily, uh, what's called a morning offering, you know, a short prayer of consecration that, you know, dedicating the day to the Lord. And then I tell people, and I'm very influenced by St. Philip Neri on this, but most people don't have a great prayer life. I don't claim to have a great prayer life, but I'm working on it. And I think one of the things that people need to understand is you don't have to start big, just start small and be consistent. And so I really encourage people every day. I literally tell people to set a timer, which I know sounds really mechanical, but as a writer, I have discovered that setting a timer helps me focus. And so I say, set a timer. I have them pray the Lord's prayer. And then I, I, with a lot of my coaching clients, I, uh, I have them pray regularly pray Psalm 23 because Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. I find that with driven, ambitious people, they are so driven that very often they want to be in control and they have anxiety. So it's good to bring it back to Psalm 23 and just the Lord is my shepherd. He's going to take care of me. He's going to provide me peace. He's going to restore my, my soul. And so those are the things, just very simple baseline things that literally take 11 minutes a day to start with is just forming the, doing those critical tasks and forming those regular habits that over time will produce faith, hope, and love. And, and we know they will. The Catholic Church has been giving the same pattern of holiness for thousands of years. It's not like suddenly it's not going to work for us. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know if that answered your question. No, but. it's it's beautiful. I, I love it. I The three big takeaways uh, are visualize what you want to do, uh, have gratitude for everything that's happened so far, and uh, make your power list. And I, I know from teaching high school students and teaching college students and just from being a human these things may sound simple, but 90% of the people are probably not doing them. At right. least they are certainly not doing them every single day. But right. visualizing where you want to go, a long time ago, I read a book called Positive Intelligence, and it was supposed to be mm. the sequel to the whole concept of EQ, which is emotional intelligence, which was supposed to be the sequel to the whole concept of IQ, intelligence right. quotient. So EQ came along and it basically said, Hey, there's a reason you can have two people who have the same IQ and one has a career that really soars and the other one winds up in the gutter. And they would give examples like two physics professors at the university. One is getting published all over the place and his career is taking off. And then the next is just blowing up on the launch pad. And the reason for that was, was EQ. Um, the people with the strong EQ were able to make connections and they helped others and they were able to get help when they needed it. Well, 
that was kind of the concept in EQ. And then PQ came out and it basically pointed out that very successful people have positive thoughts roughly about 80 to 90% of the time. And most of the rest of us are walking around waiting for the other shoe to drop, thinking about what could go wrong, uh, how everything is going to do a cordless bungee jump off of the Sears Tower. That's what most of us are thinking. So I just, I love, I love his three steps and I love how you've internalized them yourself. I just think that's really amazing. Thanks. I appreciate that, Tim. And I would say just as a qualification and, you know, I'm always thinking of people's possible objections. This might not be as, as big of a thing in Catholic, in the Catholic circles, but, you know, in my former tradition, people were always a little bit uh, uneasy about this whole idea of visualization because they felt like it was this selfish thing of, oh, I'm just, I'm just picturing myself getting a, a Lamborghini or I'm picturing myself, um, uh, you know, becoming rich. And my thing with that is, is that it's a sin or it's an act of worship, depending on what it is you're visualizing, you know? Um, for me, I, I, I like visualizing myself truly as there are times that I visualize myself uh, speaking to huge amounts of people but I can say in my heart that my ultimate driving goal in that is not uh, because I want all this, you know, adulation. Because reality is, is that uh, I am. Uh, people are sometimes surprised to know this. I'm an introvert. I, I I like being alone. So to be out in front of people constantly speaking, it will is be really draining. But I visualize that because I truly want God to give me the ability to share His message with others. And so that's what I would say. And that's why I do have that chapter in my book about visualization is that you want to visualize things and connect them to what God wants to do in your life. Um, and, and, and for that reason, and I mean, certainly the Catholic church has a rich, rich uh, tradition of using your imagination for, for the purpose of virtue, whether it's for prayer or even the idea of, you know, if you think about it, the idea of adoration is, you're you're adoring you're visualizing christ whom you cannot literally see uh through through the through the host you know so i think it's a fantastic thing and, and truth is i need to avail myself of it even more frequently because it, it really is true is that it, it's so easy for us as as human beings to kind of forget why we're doing things so if we can stop and focus uh it helps so much to create motivation I, I think so. And I've even read a few scientific studies on it. I, I think that this is kind of interesting, or at least reports of scientific studies, that athletes that perhaps got injured, but then every night before they would go to sleep, they would picture themselves making free throws. So then when they recovered from their injury, they would come back to play. And yes, they lost a little stamina. They lost a little bit of strength. But the comparison between two otherwise equal athletes where one visualized and the other did not was staggering. I mean, the one was basically just focusing on his craft every single day, whether he could do it or not. The other one, yeah. not so much. And then yeah. that was kind of a problem. So, yeah, you'll love this, Tim. There's even some uh, studies out that say that they did this, this, these two studies, one group of uh, these two groups, one group actually worked out, literally worked out. The other group imagined working out, okay. imagined uh, lifting weights. And while there wasn't significant muscle improvement, there was 
just by imagining lifting weights, they showed that the brain stimulated muscle muscle growth simply by imagining it. And so, yeah, the, it's the imagination is a very, very powerful thing. Um, and I, I'll, I'll throw out this recommendation to your audience is there's a great book by Daniel Coyle called The Talent Code. Okay. And it's it's very short chapters. And it's basically how all the really elite performers have essentially taught themselves how to do things. And one of the things that they say is that, you know, take the late, great Kobe Bryant. Um, one of the reasons that he became such an elite performer is that literally he would spend time just looking watching game film of Michael Jordan and just analyzing every aspect of it, just looking at it. And so I think that's that whole concept of, which is very spiritual, very consistent with the church teaches is that we become what we gaze at. We become what we look at. You know, that's how we're transformed. Mm -hmm. That's why in heaven we have the beatific vision. We we're going to look and see God face to face and we're going to become like him. And that's of course what the whole concept of, of adoration is this, this beholding and this adoring of, of the risen Christ in the hopes that we'll become more like him. Um, and so I, I just can't stress that enough to people is, you know, have closing your eyes, really imagining what it is you want and what God wants you to become in life. That is great. That is absolutely great. Um, maybe one more story from Andy, and then I, I really want to dive into more stories from your book. Sure. Um, what, from your time with Andy, what is one particular story that just really stands out? Either the most memorable or the craziest or the something. <laughs> uh, I'll give you two. One's very short and one, it requires a little explanation. Okay. I, you know, this is just early on when, uh, when we had, you know, started the podcast and the early indications were that man, this people were responding this, you know, amazingly. Um, and that we were getting all these downloads. I texted him and I said, uh, I said, you know, cause Andy likes to say the word dude a lot, dude. <laughs> I said, dude, you're killing it. You know, like you're crushing it. And he wrote back and he wrote, no, no. And I looked back and I, and I was like, what, what is these? And I saw the dots, the little dots, you know? So I knew he was saying, He's like, no, dot, dot, dot. And in big letters, he wrote, we, <laughs> we are crushing it. And the truth is, is that Andy has a very, very strong sense of teamwork. And he understands the value that he brings to the brand and he knows his skills. And I'm, you know, he has an ego just like everybody else. But Andy is very much a, uh, uh, you know, if Andy, I think Andy would make a better Catholic than a Protestant because Andy, Andy believes in the communion of the saints, so mm. to speak. He believes that, you know, we don't, we don't achieve things individually. We do really truly achieve things. We're, we're, we're responsible for our, for playing our role and to maximizing that role to the, to the, to the highest level, but none of us accomplishes anything alone. And so that's always been really, really um, I already believe that, you know, like in a ministry setting, but even in a success setting, um, you know, outside of ministry, like in personal development or, or entrepreneurship, that's always been really, really drilled into my head so much so that I realized that there are certain things in, in my life that I'm simply not going to be successful unless I ask for help. My fitness being one of them. <laughs> I take my fitness seriously, but I also realize that for me, 
I'm not going to be able to do well unless I have a trainer with me or somebody who's going to keep me accountable. So, so that's the first lesson. The, the second lesson is just, you know, at a certain time, a couple of years ago, I just was going through, doing a very good job. And so at the same changes and things for Andy. And so he gave us all, um, uh, non-disclosure agreements and non-competes that we were supposed to sign. And I didn't have a lot, lot of experience with uh, business. So I didn't know that this was pretty standard. Um, I, I didn't know that it was standard to have your, your teammate or your team members sign NDAs and non-competes and all that. that that's just part of someone protecting their investment. Um, and so I was really uh, self-conscious and that made me fearful. And I thought he was going to have me sign this because he didn't think I was doing a good job. And that right after I signed it, he was going to fire me. And then I started worrying, well, maybe I'm not, if I, if I sign an NDA or non-compete, then I'm not going to be able to get some more work, you know? And so doing what I enjoy doing. And so uh, he came into the office and he, you know, he said, uh, did you sign it? I said, dude, I can't sign that. And and he got really suspicious because he, from his standpoint, he thought that I'm a thing. If I'm not going to sign an NDA or a non-compete, I must be looking to a competitor. He got really like suspicious. Like, if you don't sign that, you're fired. And I'm like, I'm not signing this. And so there was this big level of, of misunderstanding. And and his one of his second in commands comes in and, and, and Andy says, Jason, get a hard drive. Cause uh, we're taking Vaughn's computer. He's fired. And Jason's like, uh, okay. And he goes back out and then he comes back in and he's like, guys, what's going on. And at that point, Tim, I was, I felt like here I am. I'm like, okay, now I'm fired. And I was already feeling bad about myself. And the one thing in my mind I'm, I'm thinking is I don't want to get emotional. Cause I was, I was feeling really bad about myself. And sure enough, I start kind of welling up a little bit. So I'm trying to hide it. I'm putting my head down. I'm trying to hide it. And I'm kind of hiding behind the, the laptop. And all of a sudden, Andy's demeanor changes like that. And he says, he says, dude, what's the matter? Why are you getting emotional? And I just exploded. I just like, I am a pastor at heart. I don't know anything about business. I just assume that you, you're having me sign this because you want to fire me. And, 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 you know, I just kind of, it. and he goes, okay, hold, hold it. He's like, this is my fault. He said, I'm a bad leader. I've been a bad communicator. And then he said, Vaughn, please, or he said, Jason, which is his second in command. He said, Jason, please explain to Vaughn that we do this with everybody, that this is standard policy that we don't get, kind of just get people to say. So basically they spoke to my fears. They spoke to, to my, you know, my insecurities. And Andy, a, instead of stepping on my throat in that moment of weakness, he showed real love and concern for his employee, even though there had been this huge um, misunderstanding. And then he takes it a step further and he says, well, is that all you're worried about? And I go, well, listen, man, I said, you pay me well, but um but, you know, Kasha's pregnant. She's about to go on leave. We're going to be without her income. We've got to pay off for student loans. So I'm just stressing about money a little bit. So he sits back. He goes, yeah, I understand that. Uh, and he said, well, you know, I fired you. And I go, I know. And he goes, would it help if I rehired you with a $50,000 raise? What? 
<laughs> that is amazing. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, excuse me. I think it was only 40,000. Um, so I'm, I'm just laughing. I'm trying not to laugh. And I, I mean, and it was just the funniest thing. Like in the space of 20 minutes, I went from fired to rehired to a substantial raise. And the reason I love that story is not just because of the race part is that Andy is a very, very strong-willed individual. He is very, very intense, but he is completely capable of humbling himself and admitting when he's done something wrong or admitting when there's been some sort of misunderstanding. And I would say to anybody that um, having a strong will, uh, being driven, being ambition is not incompatible with humility. In fact, it's humility that is going to help you to continue to get better and better at what you do. Um, Andy says, the minute you think you know everything, you know, you're done in business because you can't improve. You can't get better. So it's, so that's a, that's a story that's always stayed with me is that, you know, no matter, no matter how much you've learned, no matter how much you've accomplished, you got to take the attitude that you, you really know nothing and that there's always light years that you could, you could improve uh, and get better and better. You know, there's also something to be said just for the sheer honesty of the moment. The two of you were just prepared to butt heads, you know, yeah. to, uh, to beat your fists against each other and to clash. And you were willing to risk your job on the basis of, well, I don't want to sign this thing that I don't understand. And then, right. you know, so both of you are like two bulls in a china shop. And then the whole thing, the whole dynamic just absolutely flips it around. You know what it reminds me of? This is going to be a little bit crazy. But for people who have seen the movie Cool Hand Luke. In, yeah. Yeah, in Cool Hand Luke, you got Paul Newman who comes in and he's he's put into prison for busting the heads off of parking meters. And so they they put him on a chain gang and they they do all kinds of horrible things to him. Well, there's this, this uh, big guy in there, George Kennedy, who's been in prison for a long time. And he basically is just upset that somebody else is coming in and they're not paying their dues to the man who's running the prisoners, basically. So they get into yep. a big fist fight and uh, Paul Newman just refuses to give up. And he just gets leveled yep. by George Kennedy and he's passed out and he's <laughs> unconscious. And then after that, they're best friends. Yep. Just the fact that they slugged it out. There's no yep. subterfuge. There's no talking behind the other person's back. They just slug the whole damn thing out. And then by the end of the movie, George Kennedy is running up to Paul Newman all the time and saying, what are we going to do now, Luke? What are we going to do now? What are we going to do? You know? Yeah. So, I mean, the whole leader follower yeah. dynamic just absolutely switched around. And your, your story is, I think it's a testament to honesty and to courage and to just putting it all out there. And I don't know. Yeah. Have you ever thought about right. the, have you ever thought about the larger messages of that story? No, absolutely. And I think the Cool Hand Luke thing is 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 a great illustration. And I, I also can't help but state the, the great quote in Cool Hand Luke by the what we have here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> <laughs> so uh no, it's great. No, I it's uh it's always that that has always impacted me because a lot of people only see the 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 fiery fierce side of Andy. They don't see the kind of, they don't necessarily see the, the, the side of him that would, you know, give his back, you know, take the shirt off his back to help you. Um, so yeah, it's always, it's a, it's a, to me, the larger implication is that 
uh, you can be fiery and, and you can also be uh, tender and generous of heart at the same time. And I think, especially as Christians, as Catholics, sometimes I think our view of holiness is it we're, you know, we just all have to be Mr. Rogers and super nice and gentle. And uh, the reason, the reality is, is that, you know, Jesus cracked a whip, you know, he cracked a whip at the temple. He cleared, cleared out the temple, but he also, he also called the children to him and said, you know, blessed are, are the children here, blessed are you when you, when you're like a little child. So, so I think, um, you know, success, leadership, becoming who you're meant to be, it can be this really unusual combination of fierceness and also uh, warmth and generosity. Do you think that maybe things are counterintuitive and that it's easier for people to be truly gentle, perhaps with a child, if they're also truly tough? Yeah, I think people who are not, uh, I think people who are not really mature have difficulty being uh, gentle. You know, have if they're known as being tough, they they have difficulty being tender. Um, I think that's a real sign of maturity that, you, like you know, a soldier who's a dad who can go from soldiering to to fathering in the blink of an eye. I mean, that's a sign of real maturity. Absolutely, absolutely. You're such a great storyteller. Let's get back oh, to thank your you. book. Um, there's just one story that just really stood out to me as. Pretty hilarious. And it was the one about the high school girlfriend that you wanted to make out with. And (laughs) then you end up like having to lie to your brother. And then there's a whole comedy of errors that just ensues. Uh, I would just love for you to tell that story. Yeah. So um, when I was, oh, I don't know, a junior in high school, I I was starting to have an awakening of faith. I I was very sincere in my desire to to love Jesus and, and to be a good Christian, but I was still, there were still some pretty significant wrinkles in my character. And, and as I said in the book, it's not like I was, I mean, compared to what people are involved in these days, it, it, it was kind of a PG 13 thing, but I had a, a really great girlfriend. Uh, I called her Shelly in the, in the, um, in the book, but um, you know, we weren't doing horrible things together, the things that are inconsistent with the Catholic faith or the a Christian Christian witness. But I was pushing the envelope with her and, and doing things, you know, in terms of being physical in ways that were just not super honoring to the Lord. And one day I, I uh, had her over to my house and my parents' rules were, you know, no girls in the house. Excuse me, no girls in, in my bedroom. And so um, I, my mom was upstairs doing something. She was very distracted about something, but it was something important. And I knew that she wasn't going to come downstairs and see that we weren't in the living room. My my bedroom was downstairs. So I had to tell my younger brother, Lance, uh, I had to find a way to keep him from spying on us. And at that time, as I said in the book, he had this, he had this thing where he liked to put on a vampire cape and, and spy on me. Now, after the fact, he told me, after I'd written the book, he told me, you know, sometimes I dressed up as a vampire and sometimes I just pretended I was Batman. But in the book, I talk about him dressing up like he's a vampire going to spy on us. And so I told him, I came up with this way of, of keeping him from, from spying on us. I said, hey, listen, um, I, I'm going to tell Shelly about Jesus. And he's like, what? I said, I, I'm going to share the gospel with Shelly. And I, it's very important. Uh, I, we need privacy. So we're going to go in my bedroom and I'm going I'm to talk to her about Jesus. And it's very important that you do not come in or spy on us because you could completely mess up the work of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so, Bob, that's so, so kind of you. 
Yeah, right. And so he's like, well, uh, okay, I guess that makes sense. And so, uh, of course, Shelly and I went into the bedroom and started making out. And here I, and, and I had taken some precautions. I had put this little uh, ceramic uh, elephant on the top of the, uh, the doorknob. And I figured if Lance just moved the doorknob a little bit, it would fall and it would alert me to his presence that I'd be able to, you know, gather myself and, and he wouldn't catch me. What I didn't count on was the fact that he didn't even try to be subtle. He instead just grabbed the door handle, ripped open the door and came running in, his cape swirling. And uh, Tim, you and I are, I think, similar similar uh, ages. And, you know, there was this show on TV in the 60s and 70s called, you know, it was the Batman show. And it was very campy. And there was a guy that played the Riddler and he'd go, ho, 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 and he'd say, I have a plan. And Lance came in like that. And he... He came in and he'd go, ho, 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 ho. And, he, and, he, and as the cape was swirling, he'd go, telling her about Jesus, eh? <laughs> you know, and I mean, it was just the most embarrassing thing in the world. And, uh, and Shelly looked at me like, what? And I was so angry. And I hopped out of it, out of bed, and I started racing after him. And of course, he ran up the stairs and ran to get my mom and basically told her that I was sharing, sharing the gospel with my tongue uh, oh, my. <laughs> in very inappropriate ways. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was an embarrassing thing, but what was really the life lesson for me was kind of seeing her face. Like, what are you doing? You know, like you're kind of a joke. You're, you're, you claim to be this great Christian. She also went to a church and was, you know, I don't know her heart, but it seemed like she was a, uh, had a sincere faith. We had some disagreements politically. And I think at the time I probably would have thought, well, nobody can be a Christian and have those political views, you know? And so, but it was a really hypocritical thing for me to be condemning her and, uh, and yet be completely uh, completely unaware or, or insensitive to my own inconsistencies and my own sin. And so the point of that chapter is simply that we're not going to be who we are meant to be unless we have as much as possible a clear conscience before God. And so I, I, I use that example to kind of talk a little bit about how we free ourselves, how we clear our consciences. And, you know, from a Catholic standpoint, there's that great gift of confession uh, if they're, you know, I, I, I tell everybody I know, because I'm a convert, obviously the Catholic faith entered the church in 2011. I do not understand cradle Catholics who do not value confession because I think it's such a gift. The sacrament of reconciliation is such a gift. And, and every time I have gone in there to unburden my soul of, of my sins and inadequacies, I have always been met with warmth and, and grace and, and real mercy uh, you know, the priest standing in the place of Jesus and, and offering me that great absolution. So, so that to me, that's, you know, that there's a great uh, proverb um, that says that the, the pure are bold as a lion or the righteous are bold as a lion. Mm. And what they mean by that, what that passage means is they're not encumbered by an uneasy conscience. They're not weighed down by a sense of guilt, but they are, they feel liberated by God's grace and loved by him. And so that just helps, helps you to pursue God's potential in your life in a way that very little else in life does. So I, I kind of use that funny story as a way to talk about, you know, uh, the trappings of, of sin and, and guilt on our life.
Yeah, it's just great. Absolutely great. I just uh, recently with high school students, I'm teaching psychology now of all the crazy things for me to be teaching. And we did a whole day on lying, just different forms of lying. And the students were very honest about many of their stories about deceit and things like that. But I, I think one big point that really comes out of this is people hate to be lied to. I mean, we will lie for our own convenience, but people hate to be lied to. And, and here, Shelly just looked at you like you were a big disappointment. Um, <laughs> but the story itself, Vaughn, is just priceless. And the, the characters are just so well sketched. I just really want to give you a big compliment just for putting that story in the book. Well, thank you. I'm a better storyteller when I'm able to write it down than when I'm just uh, sharing it uh, off the top of my head. But I, I, a couple of people have told me that they've really enjoyed that story. So it offers a little humor with a point. Yeah, it's, it's just gangbusters. Um, you know, you also tell in the book, I believe, the incredible and touching story of how you met Kasha. Um, before we go any further, I, I, I want you to kind of tell that story. But would you please describe Kasha? Oh, gosh, how do I describe my wife? Um, my wife is just a very sweet, uh, beautiful, uh, gosh, just a virtuous woman. And um, a couple of the sort of practical things that I really like about her is that she's not a drama queen. She's very down to earth. She always wants to get better. Um, she admits when she's wrong. Um, she's very gracious with me when I'm in the wrong, uh, very quick to forgive. Uh, she's a great mother. She's a great, great wife. Um, you know, I, uh, I think I was just talking to her about this the other day that uh, there is something um, I don't think why well, I know that it was not a coincidence. I know that it was definitely according to God's plan that um, I married a woman from Poland because uh, St. John Paul the Great was my was my um, the confirmation saint. And I the more I learn history, I, one of my heroes is Ronald Reagan. I'm reading a book called The Pope and the President. I, 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 it's amazing how both of them were used uh, to fight communism. Um, and so I just, it's interesting. So much has happened to Poland. Uh, that, that poor country has been so brutally beaten by totalitarian regimes like the Nazis and the Soviets. And yet there's just a heroism about uh, the, that country and the people in that country. And I, I like to think that there, God has some plan for the fact that he linked me through Kasha to that heroic country. And, uh, you know, Kasha and I both really want to just be mightily used of God. And we're not sure how, but if, if uh, God can use us the way that he's used some of the, the heroic poles of the past, uh, I'd be happy. It'd be great. So, I love that. that she's was, wonderful. That was such an eloquent description of her. That was fantastic. And then how you tie it into your larger ambition to serve God and Kasha's larger ambition to serve God. Um, it's just rather amazing. How did the two of you meet? Uh, so I had already decided to become Catholic and I was friends with uh, a mutual friend of yours and mine, Carrie Kafka, who is now Carrie Perot. And I uh, told her, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm ready to really take this step forward, but I want to talk a little bit about it. And so she and I agreed to meet for uh, dinner um, in Kansas City. And then afterwards, uh, she said, well, do you want to go to adoration at St. Uh, Agnes in, uh, I think it's Shawnee Mission. Might yeah. Be Orland Park. yeah, that's right. But at Shawnee Mission. 
And so we went there. And when I went in, I looked over and I saw this young woman that just, you know, beautiful. And she was smiling. And I remember thinking, oh, who, who is that? You know, and she was kind of smiling at me in, in a way that I thought, oh, she probably thinks I'm cute. But in reality, I was still a Protestant. I didn't really know what I was doing in terms of genuflecting. I looked really silly. So she was chuckling to herself how silly I looked. And she's like, he must not be Catholic because he doesn't know what he's doing here in this adoration chapel. And then afterwards, after Carrie and I went to um, the adoration chapel, she said, oh, well, there's a house party going on with me and my roommates back at our house. Do you want to come? And I said, sure. So I went back there and sure enough, Kasha was one of her roommates she sat down next to me and I'll be honest with you. I tell everybody this. I looked at her and it's like a, a flip just switched. And I said, Oh, there's my wife. And um, as I tell everybody, and it's particularly young men. Um, well, all men. Uh, I did not tell her that. I think that's a little bit, you know, not cool to tell somebody, Oh, I think you're my wife because I had this deep sense that you're my wife. I told her that much later after we were after we were engaged, but I really did have a very, very deep sense, just almost as a matter of, um, you know, God gave that to me as a gift. He gave that certainty to me as a gift because Kasha did not have that certainty. She um, she struggled with some doubts through our through our courtship, and we even broke our engagement at one point. Um, Ultimately, she she got a real piece about it and, and came to believe that that, uh, you know, we were meant to be together, that that God that we, we should get married. And uh, but I think had I not had that certainty that maybe we'd not we wouldn't have made it. But so it was a real gift. It was a real gift of that. So it's been great. We've got four daughters. Um, you know, it remains to be seen whether we'll have more. But uh, I, I love being a girl dad. And, uh, it's kind of, that's really awesome. Um, engagement, when the engagement broke apart, did, did you have any hope that the two of you would get back together or did you just think that's it? It's over. I'm doomed. What did you think? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, so the night it happened, um, I mean, I obviously felt very sad, um, felt punched in the gut and I had had another serious relationship not work out. And I did feel at first there were some voices saying, see, you trusted in God and it didn't work out. You know, just, you know, essentially the voices were saying, forget trying to pursue a virtuous woman, go sow, sow your wild oats, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, and I went to sleep and I was pretty sad. I don't think I was hopeless, but I was sad. But the next morning I woke up, I just had a great sense of peace. I had a great sense of confidence. I went and uh, I put on the Rocky Four uh, soundtrack and I went running and then I went to adoration and I just had this sense that, that it was, it was going to be fine. And I had told Kasha when we were dating um, before we had gotten engaged, when we first started dating, I said, you know, um, I dated a girl and it didn't work out. And I went into this deep depression and deep rebellion and I said, I, I think I realized that in the after fact that I didn't accept that woman into my life as a gift. Mm. I, I made her an idol and I made my happiness dependent upon her, having her in my life. And I told Kasha, I said, I'm never going to make you an idol, no matter how much I love you, no matter how much I want you in my life. I'm never going to make you an idol. And so I think that's what happened is the next morning I realized, you know what? My hap I want Kasha, but I don't need Kasha to be happy. 
And she's not an idol. She's a gift. And so I remember having this conversation with the Lord and saying, listen, I want her in my life. Uh, I sure would like to, you know, to continue to pursue her to marriage. And I just felt like the Lord was saying, go for it. It's great. And, and, And I was very confident. I was just patient. I gave her her space. And then after a certain amount of time, I started pursuing her again. And honestly, Tim, Kasha would tell you that one of the things that was very attractive to her was that I didn't fall apart when we broke up. She said he seemed very happy. He seemed completely at peace. And she said, and that got me thinking, wait, what's going on? Um, and, and so, yeah, in God's time, we were, we were married and um, it's, it's been great. I mean, you know, all marriages has, have their ups and downs and we've, we've had some things we've really had to work through, but, um, but I'm just really thankful for, for Kasha and for my family. Awesome. Awesome. There's uh, two words that, that you mentioned, uh, idol versus gift. And I think it would benefit the listeners if you describe the difference between those two words, because people don't usually talk this way, just walking down the street, like, oh, I'm at the 7-Eleven. And somebody said, you know, I've, I've kind of made the mistake of making my fiance into an idol. You just don't hear that in normal social circles. So could you define idol and then could you define gift? Yeah. So in the Old Testament, an idol is simply a false god. It's, it's, um, it's something that you, that you base your whole life around. It's the center of your existence. Okay. And so um, if, if uh, and, and it's that thing upon which you base your whole happiness and sense of being. And so, um, interestingly enough, in, in Romans chapter one, St. Paul says um, that human beings take created things and they exchange them, uh, they exchange the glory of the creator for created things. Mm. And so instead of putting God at the center of your life and, and him being the very reason for your being, you suddenly put money or a, another human being or a drug or an addiction or you know, you know, what a a car. Okay. So that, that, and the real disorder happens in the human life is when God's place at the center of your life is, is, is replaced by something else, something he's created or, or, or something he's given you. And so in that sense, it's, it's like, you know, let's say a good father gives their, their son a car. And the whole point was you always were meant to use the car for, you know, specific purposes, but the car is just a reason that you, that you are thankful to the, to the father. Well, suppose the son takes that car and that car just becomes like, Oh, I'm obsessed with that car. I, I, the only thing I really care about is, is polishing it and keeping it in good shape. And I never want anybody to touch it. And I, and it, and, and I'm constantly tending to it and it becomes, it, it becomes important in a way that is complete, goes completely beyond its intended value. That's when a gift becomes an idol. And what I mean is, is that God created the world and intends to shower us with gifts, but the gifts are always meant to, to cause us to be more in love with the giver, more in love with the person who's the source of those gifts. And a big, a big way that you can determine whether something's a gift or an idol in your life is, does God take it away? It's okay to be sad. It's okay to mourn the loss of a gift. 
But if you start shaking your head or your fist at God, or you start getting angry at God because you don't have some that that means something more that you, you were as you know you're looking to your financial success or your your health or your relationships for your happiness and you weren't ultimately looking to God for your happiness. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, okay. So then my next question is the Good. last 10 years of your life have just been <coughs> really wild for your whole family. I mean, you know, since 2011, you got married, you took various jobs right. as a writer and an editor, you created a job out of nowhere and then parlayed that into working at your dream college, Benedictine. You worked with Andy, and you're doing a lot of cool things right now. Um, what do you attribute that to? Just the fact that, you know, I mean, sometimes people have 10 whole years where not very much happens. And then here in the last 10 years, you've just had this extremely varied and exciting life. What do you, <laughs> what do you think is causing that? Oh, gosh. Um, I think from a from a heavenly perspective i mean just god is good he's gracious and he opens doors and um and he always wants to do good to us and and so you know i i think the grace of god is what what has authored this whole surreal amazing story i think something that i i think i've done pretty well at um that i think is a good key to success for anybody is i I haven't really complained that, you know, oh, I had to leave the pastorate because I became Catholic. I'm pretty adaptable. And so I'm pretty good at just saying, okay, well, this is the, this is the hand that God has dealt me. And so now I've got to figure out how to, how to adapt to it and make the best of it and uh, turn, uh, turn this new situation into an opportunity. Your basic ability, Vaughn, to take something that a lot of people would view as a tragedy in their life that you can't be a pastor anymore. And that was a very rich and satisfying career for you or that your engagement mm -hmm. to your beloved just fell apart. Your ability to turn that around and see what's positive in that and just, you know, think that God will take care of you and something good will come up. I, I just really encourage people to read your book just so that they can get more of a glimpse of how you do that. Um, because I, I just think that that's an amazing trait. Um, not sure what else I can say about that. Is there anything else that Thank you'd you. like to say about your ability to be flexible <laughs> and adaptable? No, I just think, I, I mean, I think it's, I think it comes from, I think I just, of all the things that, you know, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, but I am just very convinced of the goodness and the grace of God. And so my thought is, is he truly, if you let him, he truly can take any, any situation and turn it, turn it into something you just couldn't imagine, you know? And uh, he, God is very creative. <laughs> He's very able to take uh, the different dynamics of your life, no matter what they are, and, and turn them into something beautiful and unique. And so I, I think that's, that's kind of what I did well, is that I just kept on moving forward and saying, okay, all right, Lord, I don't know how to reinvent myself, but you can certainly help me and, and just keep moving forward and have a good attitude about it and, um, and trust that he knows better than you do. Okay. Um, speaking of reinventing yourself, now that we are into the new year, um, a few months into it, and you alluded to this earlier, you have a lot of plans. I would love to know some of your plans. Mm -hmm. Well, um, the, the first ones, uh, the first plans is kind of keep on doing stuff. Uh, I, 
I published this book. I want more and more people to read it. I think it can really help them. Um, and so I've just got to be diligent to, to get on some podcasts like yours and, and to share the message with people and find different ways to spread the, the word about the book and get, get the, the ideas in people's hands. So that's the first thing. I want to continue to write um, my newsletter and uh, offer that to people week in and week out. Right now we're doing a series on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, my newsletters, I think the reason people like them is that I think they give them something to think about, but you don't have to have a PhD to understand what I'm talking about. I try to keep I try to keep it pretty simple and, and basic, but also practical. Um, but I think what I'm embarking on right now that I'm really excited about is that I've got a I've got a, about a dozen um, clients who you know it's one on one mentorship. It's kind of a combination between uh, spiritual direction and coaching. And so my goal is to really help people keep strong spiritually as they seek to scale their business or build their brand or, you know, achieve some level of peak performance in any area of their life. I want them to, to have a drive and I want them to have ambition, but I want them to keep their feet on the ground spiritually and stay, stay really close to the Lord. So I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying building those relationships. I'm sure I'm going to take more clients as the year goes by. Um, and then probably the biggest thing too is I am going to start a regular online fellowship group, you know, what it could be called a virtual community. That's probably going to launch in May. But again, um, that the whole point of that is going to be for uh, Christians of all traditions and denominations who uh, want to integrate this, this, you know, personal development, this desire to be ambitious and have goals with the faith aspect and the, and, and with the teachings of, of the Bible. Um, and so the, in general terms, just kind of what, what my book is about, it's going to be a group meant to really encourage people to pursue their God given potential again, not just for their own gain, but for the glory of God and the good of the world. And uh, I'm hoping that when I create that group, I can not just share some good teaching points, but that I can bring people together so that they can form relationships with other like-minded people who really want to be overachievers for Jesus, so to speak. <laughs> That'd be a good title for the group, Overachievers <laughs> for Jesus. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. I, yeah. I love how all the parts of your life are integrated. Uh, your newsletter and the group that you want to form and your life coaching and your book are all pretty much on the exact same theme and that's that's just great. I mean, I think it's wonderful if, if somebody can do two things that are disconnected. Yeah. I, I majored in math and English as a as a college student. I have no idea why I did that in retrospect. You know, they yeah. don't they don't really blend together all that well. Um, but what you're doing, everything is just a wonderful tapestry. It's just all very integrated. Um Thank you. did that happen by accident, or do you or do you feel that you're just very prompted, very led? into this one direction, which I think is a great direction. It, it was organic, Tim. Uh, the more I moved towards something, um, the more it just sort of coalesced and sort of clarified. And, uh, you know, the way, again, the way that I, the way that I really articulate everything is I really want to be used by God to help people fulfill their God-given potential. Again, not just for their own earthly gain, but for the good of the world and the glory of the God. That that's, that's, uh, that's kind of how I articulate things. And it took me a while to sort of clarify and crystallize that, but everything, everything kind of flows out of that. That's, that's so beautifully said that you want to be used by God to help other people uh, live out their God-given potential. 
I believe that's what you said. That is just yep, beautiful. Yep. Vaughn, Thank you. Vaughn, this has just been absolutely fantastic. I would love to interview you again and go into depth on a wide variety of topics. Um, but I'd like to conclude with my very favorite question. Uh, you are 100 years old and you're sitting yep. on your front porch. You and <laughs> Kasha are holding hands. You are surrounded by children and grandchildren. And then one of the younger people asks you, Grandpa, when you look back on your life, what were the best parts? And then also, Grandpa, <laughs> what should I do with my life? What do you say? Oh, gosh, that's a big. Well, I would definitely say the best parts. Um, you know, I'm 47 and this sounds cliche, but really the best parts are, are the, the moments with my daughters and my wife. And, and it's the moments of laughter. It's the moments where, you know, we're just really enjoying each other's presence um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's the family stuff. It, it really is the family and the close friends. Um, I might be a little bit different from the typical driven, ambitious overachiever in that, um, I, I mean, I have goals and I want to, I, you know, I want to accomplish those goals, but, um, I, if you gave me a choice between, you know, you've got two hours to prepare for an Ironman or two hours to spend with your friend, Ron, talking about C.S. Lewis, I'm probably going to prefer to talk to Ron just because, you know, so much of this world passes, but a human person doesn't pass. We're all going to be together with each other in eternity if we're, you know, if we're um, in the grace of Christ. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just... People, I mean, it sounds cliche, but the best moments are, are real connections with other people. Those are the best things that are, are I think, are going to flash before our eyes. Our eyes. I, I don't think the uh, the sales numbers of my book are going to flash before my eyes. <laughs> In terms of, um, you know, what I should do with my life, I mean, I I I already tell people, you know, um, to me, a life well lived uh, is. You know, or excuse me, a day well spent is spent on three things: um, labor. You know, doing some work that that provides value to the world. That's a good use of this, uh, uh, the the opportunities and the resources that God has given you. So, labor is one of them. Learning. Uh, you know, the the word disciple literally means learner. Uh, God gave us minds; He wants us to develop and evolve as human beings. So labor, learn, and the final thing is love. Just take every opportunity you can to, to love and serve the people around you. Um, if you if you labor, labor, learn, and love every day, that, that those are days well spent, and that's a life well lived. Beautiful, beautiful. Vaughn, I, I just can't thank you so much, and I'm very grateful, and uh, I just can't see, can't wait to see where God is going to take you next. Thanks, Tim. It's good to talk to you. I've actually got somewhere to go at two, so I'll let you go. Okay. But it's been really, really great talking to you. Ditto. Ditto. Thanks, Vaughn. Take care. You bet. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seemingly Ordinary. The biggest favor that you could do for me or for Vaughn in this particular case is to share this episode with your friends. Until next time.